This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. On the 26th of November, the people of Victoria are heading to the polls, and Daniel Andrews will seek another four years as Victorian State Premier. If successful, he will lead the state for a total of 12 years, cementing his place as one of the country's most significant politicians. But to those outside of Victoria, and many of those within, his grip on the state can be baffling, according to journalist Margaret Simons. He's not at all, you would think, charismatic, and I don't think that would bother him. I think he thinks that there's a limited market for charisma and vision these days. Today, the enduring appeal of Australia's most divisive premier. It's Tuesday, the 1st of November. Margaret, you live in Victoria and have reported on both state and federal politics extensively over the years. Lately, you've been looking at Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews. Where do you want to start his story? Well, I think the place to start is after the defeat of the Brumby government in 2010. After 11 years, the people of Victoria felt that it was time to give another team and another party a chance. And as one observer put it to me earlier today, uh, the weight of time took its toll. To be honest, we just didn't expect to lose. So Labor had been thrown out of office in 2010 after a very long period in office. And the Victorian Labor Party has held its first caucus meeting since its loss in last weekend's state election and it has a new leader. Andrews took the leadership. Daniel Andrews takes over the top job from the former Premier John Brumby. And as the 2014 election approached, he had a bit of a makeover. Um, He used to be heavier and daggier. Reportedly, he used to hate being referred to as Dan and insist on being called Daniel. All that changed as the election approached and he got better suits, lost some weight, got some more fashionable glasses. The comparison with Anthony Albanese is obvious. And then held the coalition to just one term in government. That was really quite extraordinary. And Dan Andrews then, as now, did not sort of make huge rhetorical flourishes or particularly stirring speeches. Thank you all very much. The people of Victoria have today given to us the greatest of gifts. He was promising things like getting rid of the level crossings which plague Victoria's suburbs. A plan that is grounded in common sense, hard work, and a determination to always listen to the great people of this great state. So almost humble meat and potato kind of politics, but also accompanied with a progressive agenda over social issues. Since this moment and and that election, Daniel Andrews and Labor have remained in power. Can you tell me a bit about Labor's popularity in Victoria? Well, it's been in office for three quarters of the last four decades. Wow. So that's pretty significant in Australia's second biggest state and fastest growing state. 
Also, you know, if you look at federal elections, the ALP has also won the two-party preferred vote in Victoria in 12 of the last 14 federal elections. Mm. You know, so it's a pretty extraordinary record. And if Dan Andrews wins the election in November, which all the polls and pundits predict he will do, the ALP will have 12 years in this period of government. Now, that's the kind of tenure which changes states, um, changes ideas of the political possible, means that, you know, a generation will grow up not being able to remember a non-Labour government in Victoria. Right. I'm wondering if you can take me back even a bit further on the story of Dan Andrews. How did he even become the politician that we know today? Um, Well, he was born in 1972. His parents were bank workers, but entrepreneurs, really, in a small way. They had left their jobs to start a milk bar in Glenroy, which um, is a working class northern suburb of Melbourne. Mm. His father uh, reportedly voted National Party. Uh, But the main political influence on Andrews was his maternal grandfather, Michael White, who was a train driver and committed trade unionist. And Andrews uh, referred to him and made tribute to him in his maiden speech in Parliament. Um, He was raised a Catholic. These days he talks about retaining the culture of Catholicism around social justice and so on rather than the whole belief system. And, of course, he has backed the decriminalisation of abortion laws when he was health minister. And Victoria, one of the progressive pieces of legislation in Victoria, is the first state to introduce voluntary assisted dying. Not the hallmark policies of a Catholic. Andrew's Catholicism has not prevented him from backing and championing policies of that kind. Mm. How did he actually get into politics in the first place? He's been in politics his entire adult life, really. He went to Monash University He's uh, and was at the Catholic College there. He's remembered as a diligent rather than a brilliant student. And while he was still at university, he started work for Alan Griffin, who's a federal MP and a factional power broker. And then once he graduated, that turned into a full-time job. Um, Griffin is a significant figure. He's one of the people arguably running the Victorian Labor Party at the moment. At that stage, he was trying to build a socialist left factional power base in the southeastern suburbs, mm. um, and Andrews was key to that campaign. Now, some people call it call it vigorous recruiting, some people call it branch stacking, but whichever you want to call it, Daniel Andrews did it. And part of that was focusing, if you like, on local practical issues and community work rather than ideology, Uh, what the party tends to call below-the-line work, meaning that the media aren't really interested. And I think that is a bit of a clue to his modus operandi now. Hmm. How did he find his way into the Victorian Parliament? Well, from that position as one of Griffin's protégés, He took um, senior positions within the faction and then became Assistant Secretary of the Victorian branch, uh, probably the most senior position representing the left. Mm. And then in 2002, in the lead-up to the Victorian state election, the outer suburban seat of Mulgrave became available. It's a safe Labor seat centred on suburbs such as Dandenong and so on, very multicultural working class. The pre-selection wasn't at all controversial once Dan Andrews put his hand up for it. Mm. So from the moment he entered Parliament and before that he was recognised as a talent, he was Parliamentary Secretary for Health right from when he entered Parliament. Um, He then became Minister for Gaming, which of course is very important in Victoria with the casinos and so on. Didn't hold that position for very long and then became Minister for Health, 
and he held that position until Labor was defeated in 2010. Right, so that's kind of the story of his rise to state premier. What have you learned about Dan Andrews as as a person, as a colleague and as a leader in your reporting? So the way in which Dan Andrews governs, the nature of his leadership style is actually really well known. It's been well analysed in a recent biography and profile articles. I talked to present and former political staffers, present and former cabinet ministers and present and former senior public servants. Mm. So Dan Andrews, I think it's fair to say, is more respected than liked among his colleagues and he's not always even respected. He's lost a lot of ministers over his term in government, some of them what you might call natural renewal, some of them have left because of various scandals. Mm. I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the Daniel Andrews cabinet is not a particularly pleasant place to work. He's got a reputation for freezing out people who question him and he certainly runs a highly centralised government with a lot of power focused on himself and his office. Did everyone you spoke to agree with this assessment that he's a hard leader and kind of hard to work with, I suppose? Yes, um, there are certainly, he certainly has supporters and strong supporters, but I think it's a matter of um, admiration and respect rather than a warm liking. He's not in any way a sort of cuddly figure. Hmm. He's always earnest and doer and dogged, not many jokes, and when there are jokes it's extremely dry humour. And yet he certainly has shown a kind of compassion in public life. Many Victorians remember that on the day of the High Court cleared Catholic Archbishop George Pell of child sex abuse allegations, Dan Andrews tweeted that while he made no comment on the decision, quote, I have a message for every single victim and survivor of child sex abuse. I see you. I hear you. I believe you. Now, given that he didn't have to say anything at all, as one former cabinet minister said to me, that shows compassion. Some people say that Dan Andrews is a narcissist, but it shows an empathy and a compassion which are not consistent with that verdict. Mm. I think the nation saw during that extraordinary run of COVID press conferences, he is oddly compelling Mm. and he's very good at delivering a clear and concise message. And I think people underestimate that ability. In those press conferences and more broadly, He's been able to use the media really as props and prompts and has spoken over their heads direct to the Victorian people. You mentioned that he's had a similar makeover to Anthony Albanese. Can you tell me a bit about the two men? They have a a relationship, a strong relationship, right? Yes. um, They're friends. For a while they shared accommodation in Canberra when Andrews was a political staffer. Uh, there was photos of them together, I think, having a barbecue in um, in the lead-up to the federal election. I wouldn't want to overemphasise this, but both of them, of course, are from the left in their respective states. Both of them came to prominence as sort of factional operators and apparatchiks, and then once when they entered parliament, we saw that there was more to them than that. Mm-hmm. Both of them became assistant secretary in their branch of the party as part of their rise, you know, which is a really key organisational position in the left. So similar trajectories. I think a difference between them is if you talk to people who knew Albanese back in the day, 
You'll hear lots about how passionate he was, how in an argument in one of the inner suburban pubs, you know, he'd often break into tears with his passion and his sentimentality, if you like. Mm. Nobody has those kinds of stories about Dan Andrews. Right, so he's a hard leader, according to those that you spoke to. What does this leadership style lead to in terms of the environment in Victorian state parliament? Well, it achieves things, as we've seen, but it also creates its own pathologies. We have seen a phenomenal and very concerning politicisation of the public service with senior departmental secretaries having clear political lineage, if you like, and sometimes taking orders from advisers, political advisers from Andrew's office. This has come up in a number of inquiries into the, the independent inquiry into the hotel quarantine scheme in Victoria, brought this up. There's been a public service commissioner inquiry as a result, and there's a current ombudsman's inquiry, all into the politicisation of the public service. What do you risk when you have the politicisation of the, the public service? Why does that impact the citizens of Victoria? When the public service is politicised, there is a real risk that the government won't be told bad news that it doesn't want to hear. There's a real risk that you won't get advice which has integrity and which tells you the bad news as well as the good. Mm. And that gets worse the longer it goes on. And, of course, good public servants, if they don't feel good about the integrity of their work, will leave. Next, what has the Daniel Andrews government achieved? Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, you'll hear longtime Guardian columnist Bridget Delaney discuss the lessons she's learned from binging the works of the ancient Stoics. It's like they predicted how we'd be on the internet. It's like they predicted FOMO. It felt like they were around you know, kind of last year, which makes me think there is an eternal part of all of us, a part of being human that never changes. We just wear different clothes. Subscribe to Book It In Now on your favourite podcast player and listen to Bridget Delaney's episode on Thursday. What about Dan Andrews' policy record, Margaret? What has he changed and what has he championed in his time as Premier? Well, the first thing, and already clearly his most important legacy, is infrastructure. He has championed and begun really key infrastructure projects. There is a tunnel to connect the western suburbs to the centre of the city, which is to take the weight off the Westgate Bridge, which is chronically a traffic jam, basically. Um, there is a inner suburban underground railway, which is well advanced in construction, meant to be completed, I think, in a couple of years. And most ambitious of all, uh, announced during the last election campaign in 2018, there is a suburban loop railway, which will circle the middle suburbs of Melbourne mm. and will stop the city from choking itself as it grows. It will allow for the creation of centres of industry and education and employment outside the CBD. And that is enormous, enormously ambitious. Some people say so ambitious it won't ever be built. It will certainly take decades and very expensive. 
And it was done almost entirely within Dan Andrews' department. He didn't seek the advice of the normal agencies of government that you would expect. The Auditor General has been critical about the way the cost-benefit analysis was done. And his defenders would say that he's right to do this, that these sorts of visionary pieces of infrastructure would never be built if you sort of went with the way that Auditors General and Treasury Departments tend to analyse them, that the benefits in this case are really hard to quantify by those sorts of methods. But there's no doubt at all that it is a visionary project and assuming it goes ahead, it will change the nature of Melbourne for, you know, at least the next century. Margaret, as you mentioned, he has championed some progressive reforms as well around abortion, around voluntary assisted dying. Can you tell me a bit about that agenda? What else has he championed? Well, the other part of his legacy is, I think, leading the nation in various social reforms. Early in his period in government, he held a landmark royal commission into family violence, uh, well ahead, I think, of that becoming the potent national issue that it is today. Victoria has also been the first state to start a process of negotiating a treaty with First Nations people and a truth-telling commission. Now, that's been difficult um, and there's plenty of problems with it at the moment, but it's far ahead of any other jurisdiction. He's also decriminalised street-based sex work. Um, He's invested in early childhood development, um, for example, making kindergarten free from next year for three- and four-year-olds, which will mean a big financial saving for families, but also we all understand the importance of early childhood education to a child's life. And together with New South Wales, he's added a year of universal prep for four-year-olds from 2025. Again, really important And I think significantly at a time when the federal government was stepping away from these sorts of areas, which are arguably more naturally federal government responsibilities. Uh, There was also um, Australia's first scheme to provide sick pay for casual workers, which was one of the responses during the pandemic. I think one chink in the armour of this idea of Victoria as the progressive state is the reliance on heavy-handed policing. And we saw that especially during the COVID-19 lockdowns. Yeah, the lockdowns in Victoria were the worst in Australia, some of the strictest in the world. It's often said they were the longest in the world, and that's actually not accurate, but they were certainly among the longest in the world. Mm. But I think one of the things that puzzles people who are not from Victoria about why Dan Andrews is still riding high despite locking down his citizens is the way in which it was received here and the nature of Victoria. I think the social contract operates differently in Victoria. I think New South Wales in particular has trouble understanding this or even crediting that it's so. Mm. Victoria is one of only two states that wasn't founded on convict transportation. The other is South Australia. And South Australia was a largely middle-class utopian project, whereas Victoria was settled by ex-convicts and their children people for whom the idea of freedom and equality was very real and vibrant and also new. Then very quickly you got the gold rushes, which saw huge numbers of people from all social classes mixing in basically the same sort of squalor. You had the Eureka Stockade, which was really a rebellion against the heavy hand of colonial government. And then you had, after the gold rush, a massive building spree, huge development of Melbourne very, very quickly, but a scant labour force, and that meant that the union movement 
and hence the Labour Party got its firmest footing in Victoria. So you've got key reforms like the eight-hour working day were won here first. So that idea of Victoria being a progressive state is of long standing. Mm. That hasn't always added up to Labour being dominant. If you look at the history of liberalism in Victoria, from Alfred Deacon through to figures like Henry Bolte, um, Robert Menzies, um, Malcolm Fraser, these are Victorian liberals. But I think the key thing with all of them is that they were activist and they were liberal rather than conservative. Mm. And I think Dan Andrews is in that tradition. How does this history play into how lockdown was accepted and discussed and thought about in the state? Well, I think in the present day, the legacy of this history is that in Victoria, there is a greater expectation that if there is a problem, government should take the lead in acting to solve it. Victorian Labor is also seeing a fair bit of division, some scandals in recent years. What role has Dan Andrews had to play in that? So there was for a long while stability in Victoria, and that was largely because of a deal that was negotiated between former Senators Kim Carr on the left and Stephen Conroy on the right. Um, That has collapsed for various reasons, including Conroy's retirement, um, and that has allowed Um, some pretty rabid branch stacking. The Andrews government is in crisis tonight after 60 Minutes aired damning allegations of corruption and vile backroom behaviour. What we saw last night on 60 Minutes was someone seeking power as the end in itself. It has no place in the Australian Labor Party. Adam Somirak was a senior minister at the time and was stacking branches, you know, to an extraordinary degree. Um, and that was revealed by nine newspapers, but also there was an IBAC investigation at the time. Mr Somirek was not offered an opportunity to resign. He's not worthy of an opportunity to resign. He was sacked, and that is the fact of the matter. Now, Andrews wasn't involved in that. It wasn't his faction that was doing the stacking. Mm. There's been an investigation uh, by the IBAC. Uh, no criminal charges have resulted. Um, But clearly, this is a toxicity in the Victorian party. In the wake of this IBAC investigation, I mean, has Dan Andrews said that he wants to change this culture and is it looking likely that he, he can? He has said he wants to change it. He has said several times that there's no place for branch stacking and this sort of conduct in the Labor Party. Um, He's apologised for things like the Red Shirts affair, for example, where the Labor Party was found to have misused public money to pay for political campaign staff during the 2014 election. And people I spoke to said they think he probably does want to clear it up, but it's not a high priority, and I think the evidence would support that. So, Margaret, you mentioned that Labor and Dan Andrews is is polling well in the lead-up to this election. I want to talk about the other party for a second. I mean, are the Liberals posing any real threat? If we believe the polls and my own readings on the street, no, not really. Um, If Dan Andrews loses ground, it's likely to be independents and smaller parties rather than the Liberals for the most part. Mm. Uh, The Liberal Party has been sort of stumbling around, in my view, both at state level and federally in Victoria. They've behaved like they've just arrived in a foreign country and don't really understand the locals. And uh, that's extraordinary, really, when you consider that the Victoria was once the jewel in the crown of the Liberal Party. 
What about after this state election, Margaret? What is Daniel Andrews' political future? So there is a question as to whether Daniel Andrews will serve out the whole of this term. He has effectively anointed his heir and successor in Jacinta Allen, who's now Deputy Premier. So will he get them re-elected this term and then not see out the full term? That's possible. The other question that tends to come up is whether he will enter federal politics. There's no sign of that. He is a bit younger than Anthony Albanese, but not by much. So he's really the same generation. Um, and I don't think anybody's lobbying or suggesting that he might have a federal political career, but I guess you wouldn't want to entirely rule it out. Right, so a future Prime Minister, Dan Andrews, is possible but not likely at the moment. Not likely. I suspect that if Anthony Albanese fell under a bus or or decided it was time to move on, that they would be looking to the next generation, uh, figures such as Jim Chalmers and so on, rather than another member of this generation. Also, while Dan Andrews clearly has a grip on Victoria, I'm not sure that's replicated elsewhere in Australia. So a win for Labor for Dan Andrews at the end of this month would mean a third consecutive term for Dan Andrews, serving 12 years as Premier. How do you think that he will be remembered for this long term? Well, obviously, for the infrastructure projects, I think that is obviously the most important legacy. Possibly also for levels of debt. Victoria's debt is rising. And I think really the most important verdict, given that he's almost certain to be re-elected in November, is going to be the judgment of our children who will be using those infrastructure projects, riding those trains and also paying that debt and dealing with the political culture that Daniel Andrews will leave behind. And I suspect there'll be both positives and negatives in that. That was Margaret Timons. She's an academic and award-winning freelance journalist and author. You can read her feature on Daniel Andrews titled The Daniel Andrews Paradox, The Enduring Appeal of Australia's Most Divisive Premier at theguardian.com. We've also linked to that on the Full Story page. Also, our state team will be covering the election all throughout this month and you can find that on theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. Additional production by Alison Chan. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Matnioni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie, and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow.